Welcome to the Edge Dwellers Cafe, an interview-based podcast featuring conversations at the convergence of politics, environment and mental health in a world on edge. My name is Ben Habib and I'm an international relations scholar, an environmentalist, permaculture practitioner and neurodivergent coffee drinker. Join me in my quest to explore the edges that define us, divide us and shape how we interact with each other as we grapple with the extraordinary changes taking place across our world. Order a hot beverage and get comfortable. This is the Edge Dwellers Cafe. Greetings, Edge Dwellers. Ben Habib here, back at you with another episode of the Edge Dwellers Cafe. In this episode, our exploration of edges takes us into the terrain of migration, refugees and diaspora communities. To take us on this exploration, I'm joined by Dr. Marcus Bell, Research Fellow at La Trobe University in the Department of Politics, Media and Philosophy. He's a labour migration specialist and a freelance journalist. Marcus has expertise on forced migration and displacement, labour migration and ethnic minority affairs in the Asia-Pacific. But more importantly, he has a new book out called Outsiders, Memories of Migration to and from North Korea, published by Berghahn Books. This convo is a fascinating yarn. We explore some of the core themes from Marcus's book around challenges facing Koreans who returned from Japan to North Korea after the Korean War, but who later fled back to Japan after realising that the reality of life in the DPRK was not as advertised. We also get into Marcus's career journey in and out of academia, his observations on labour migration and climate vulnerability in Southeast Asia, COVID and the coup in Myanmar, and the physical and mental health benefits of his martial arts practice. Before I launch into the conversation with Marcus, a reminder that you can support the production of this podcast by clicking the like or subscribe buttons on whatever platform you're listening on. You can make a one-off financial contribution of any amount via PayPal, or you can become an Edge Dwellers Cafe subscriber on Patreon with access to bonus audio-visual material and a monthly live interactive webinar with me where we reflect as a group on recent episodes of the podcast. See the show notes for more details. Okay, let's get into it. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Marcus Bell. Edge Dwellers Cafe. Marcus, thanks for joining us on the Edge Dwellers Cafe. Yeah, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you very much for having me. I'm looking forward to this uh, chat. What got you started in Korean studies and the anthropology of Korea? Perhaps like many people, I sort of stumbled into it in that I moved to South Korea in 2006 and I started teaching to teach English. But very quickly, I realized that I was never going to get the full experience unless I spoke some of the language. Uh, I didn't know anything about Korean at that time. So I started getting um, lessons twice a week. And the more I could speak, the more I could engage with the place and the people. I I continued to um, really enjoy being in Korea, but uh, I, I wanted to do more with my time there. So I started uh, doing a master's at, uh, this is uh, at Seoul National University, and I did a one-year language course, and then I started um, my actual master's work. It was um, hugely challenging because all the classes were in Korean, <laughs> but it, it really got me thinking about, you know, 
what I want to do with my future. And um, anthropology was a key part of that, which leads me to the, the strange point. I, I've never considered myself a Korean studies person. I have never really felt like focused on one geographic place. More, I happen to work on Korea for a chunk of time. And e- even my focus has been North Koreans in exile rather than North Korea as a place. And I, because of that, uh, I, my PhD was on North Koreans in Japan. Again, I shifted, uh, you know, I shifted my focus. Uh, so it's strange when I think of myself as a Korean studies person. It's, it may, I fit more comfortably. I feel more comfortable as a migration studies person, as a, a scholar of displacement and, and movement and, and that kind of thing. And what attracted you to anthropology specifically as well as the discipline to explore these areas? I think I was born into it. I was born and brought up in Germany. My father was British military and um, we moved to, we spent a lot of time in Hong Kong as well as Germany and a bit of time in the UK. And from a very early age, we were always moving every one or two years, always um, to take up new posts. From a very young age, I was learning German, learning a bit of Cantonese. It just felt natural to start studying a subject where the whole premise is learning about human beings, their behavior, cultural practices, these strange things that humans do, um, whether it's at home, if you have a home country in your home country or or somewhere else. So anthropology has been a kind of therapy for me to try and understand both myself and my very uh, some little bit complicated background, but also to help me where in each place I go to understand and engage with the people I meet. I, I love it with a passion, um, even if it can be a cruel, a cruel mistress sometimes. Yeah, wow. So your childhood and, and teenage survival adaptation strategy has turned into the discipline of your career. That's, uh, that's fantastic. Yeah. Yeah, and and I think in in some ways we all do it um, as scholars. I think if you drill down far enough and ask people why do you do what you do, often you will find that um, a, a migration studies person studies migration because they are maybe their parents are migrants to a country and they they started talking with their mother or their father about their, their background and kind of gave them that planted that seed of curiosity. Um, We study ourselves. That's what I found so much in academia. And from that, we we start from this internal path of discovery and we project outwards. That's been my experience. Maybe for you too, Ben? That's been the path of my self-reflection over the last few years is to, you know, as I've uncovered my own neurodivergence and figured out that Actually, there's something about how I experience the world that really informs innately my academic practice, my ability to read patterns of relationships at different scales. It's something I can't explain. It's just something that I can do and makes me, makes me good at the academic work that I do. But it also means sometimes that I have to reverse engineer patterns that I notice innately <laughs> in an academic yeah, sense right. in order to explain it to other people because it's a, it's a different way of thinking for me. Uh, but I certainly think there's something to that, that what you bring, your experience and uh, and who you are, certainly informs where academics end up in their specialities. Yeah, you know, it's interesting that you're a migration studies specialist because you move in and out of academia in different ways. So do you want to speak about your career trajectory and, and the interesting path that you've taken? 
I did my master's, as I said, at Seoul National. Then I shifted to the ANU for the PhD. And at that time, I also shifted to Japan as my research focus. I'd been in South Korea for around six years by that stage. So I shifted to Japan. And after that, I, uh, I was quite lucky. I landed a job at University of Sheffield. Um, this was after six months teaching at ANU. And, and um, I started working at Uni of Sheffield. It was a really great place to work. I had plenty of time to write and I got to design his new courses. But I also, you know, frankly speaking, I plotted a path into the future for myself. And I saw me a senior lectureship and then eventually full professorship. And, and it didn't fill me with the kind of excitement I thought it would. I was hoping, like, okay, you know, got these milestones and at the end point and then it's going to be and, and then what uh, I, I wasn't sure what would come next and it was at that stage I thought mm, maybe I'd be open to trying something new so when the opportunity came along to move back to Asia after being in the UK for three years it was exciting I, I didn't have a job waiting for me but that, that was part of the appeal <laughs> Um, just to be able to take that risk, uh, risks I hadn't really taken since the master's degree when when I was doing my research in South Korea, and um, and I was ready to just see what happens. So, with with some regret, I re resigned from the University of Sheffield and said goodbye to colleagues, and then moved um, to Myanmar and to Yangon. So I've I've moved in and out of academia. I love so many aspects of academia, particularly the collegiality. Uh, and the ability to think, um, what I mean is, you know, essentially, you're, you're really paid to, to think and to write. Of course, we all know that there's almost no time to, that you can actually do that. It's such an ideal. But I developed uh, an approach to the world, to understanding, to communicating what I see which is due to my time as a researcher and as an academic, and then being able to teach, you know, you process things in a new way, and, and that also contributed to my journey. So now I find myself more, I consider myself more of an, a public academic. And what I mean by that is I'm still publishing. I publish um, for as part of my current work, and I, I currently work for the UNIOM, and I'm a researcher, of course, at La Trobe. But I also love just writing about food and writing about fighting martial arts and uh, uh, writing about um, just things which capture my imagination. While I was in Yangon, I wrote about grab drivers. You know, the grab is like the equivalent of Uber in um, Southeast Asia. And I, um, I wrote about you know, why they become grab drivers, what challenges they face. Um, do they make better money than just haggling? And um, I got to know a whole bunch of grab drivers really well. And we would hang out and, uh, you know, eat street food. And um, <laughs> it was really, really nice. And I wrote about um, Letway fighters. Uh, Letway is the equivalent of Thai boxing. Um, so, you know, hands, knees. And in Myanmar, they also headbutt. And I got to know a bunch of Letway fighters as part of before our interviews. They would uh, insist we have a sparring session, uh, which was terrifying, <laughs> absolutely terrifying, but also really, like, really fun. This is how you get to know people. You build friendships and, and then afterwards maybe go for a beer, that kind of thing. So um, my point is that my work has shifted. The nature of my work has shifted from being a more formal kind of process of go research when you've got a specific budget, come back write some papers, have them rejected, rewrite them, <laughs> try and get them accepted, uh, and then and make sure you get a book out every 
three, four years in order to get it in for the ref and that kind of thing to just really writing and talking about what I want to do. There is a, a boundary, there is a wall between sort of the academic knowledge realm and public informational spaces. They're, they're almost like two separate ecosystems, not necessarily because of the peer review process, but because of where that work is published in journals that require institutional subscriptions and, uh, and also written in a often an inaccessible disciplinary language or disciplinary languages that lay people can't really engage with through no fault of their own. This approach to being a public academic that you're taking, you probably got more to offer the world in an immediate sense than you might have if you'd stayed in a strictly uh, academic track. I spent a lot of time thinking um, about my writing, uh, focusing on improving it, focusing on being a better communicator. And um, part of that has involved making sure that, for example, um, uh, my students could understand what I was writing. Whenever I write something, I would have either a student in mind or my mum in mind. These are not these are educated people, but they're not specialists in the subject. And so I'd write with the, these people at the forefront of my mind. And at the end, I say, "Can my mother understand this?" And I say, "Okay, yeah, maybe we can test it out, mum. What do you think?" <laughs> so it's been a process of shifting from. Early on in my academic career, I, I first published a, an academic article in 2012, and I can read. I read some of my earlier work, and it's just full of jargon. And I can see I'm really trying to do what I think is expected of me, whether it's using you know these complex terms or citing the right people. And it comes from an insecurity, at least in, in my case, I was very insecure. It's only recently I think I'm shifted away from this. The, they call it imposter syndrome, of course, where you feel like you don't belong in the realm in which you've, you're working, where you're existing. And I think to some extent, most of us have it. What I found in academia is I, we all have to stand, do the salutes to the right people at the right time through our writing, through our presentations, all kind of this. But I, I found that it made me a poorer writer, a poorer communicator. And then on top of that, as you said, Ben, there is a whole gatekeeping system in academia where if you don't have an, a university account, for example, you can't access pu publications. If you can't access publications, you can't write in a certain sphere. It's really hard to access new ideas. And so I was finding with my earlier publications, I, I was publishing them and then I often forget my passwords and I couldn't get back in. I couldn't find them. I thought, well, I can't even access my own work anymore. What, what is this? What's going on here? And so because of this, I, I mean, academia is inherently exclusionary. It's, it's, de it's designed to, to keep certain people out. And, and certainly in this sense, if you are not part of the academy, if you don't have, if you're not a student or you're not a, an academic, then you can miss out on the new knowledge which is being produced and then your work falls behind and then you when you try and do some research by yourself, it creates it's a circular process and your work becomes less relevant. So what I've tried to do with my current, with the work is, as well as trying to write a more accessible, in a more accessible way, I try and publish, every time I publish an academic article, I usually try and write two, four public shorter articles. I recently published a an academic article on ancestor worship and, and funerary practices in North Korea and by North Koreans in exile. And I, I, I was like, really happy. 
was really happy with this publication, but I also knew no one's ever going to read it <laughs> except for like a handful of academics already in such a niche area. So I'm interested in Korea. Great. I'm actually, I'm interested in North Korea. Fantastic. I'm interested in the unusual aspects of North Korea. So not just nukes and other things, but ancestor worship. Wow, you're my audience. Okay, great. Here's my article. So I rewrote that into very short, short versions, and um, and then I publish it in more accessible places so students can read it. You know, students are overburdened; they're more likely to read an eight hundred word article than they are a, a six thousand one. And this is one of my ways of trying to make my work more accessible, and it's more fun as well. You get caught up in in the formalistic aspects of writing and publishing and. When really you write the best, maybe you find this too, Ben, but I find I write the best when I'm enjoying it and when I can like get into a flow and when I don't have to like reach for a book every second. Yeah, this, is, this has been part of my kind of intellectual journey, my refining my um, techniques to make sure that it's more interesting for people to read or that anyone even wants to read it. I know in my own writing, I think my best writing is not necessarily the dry, wonky international relations stuff but it's when i can write with some kind of emotion because it's coming from a different place so when i'm you know the mental health stuff i've written or stuff about environmentalism and environmental issues where it's coming from a heart place rather than a strictly intellectual place with all its rules and and all of the baggage associated with that there's a lot about the academic publication and the incentives the incentive structure around that business a lot of it is you're churning out material for the glory and benefit of other people rather than yourself or your audience. Yeah, and, and just to build on that point, I found um, working in the UK, everyone is obsessed with the REF, Research Excellence Framework, I think it is, uh, which means that you've got to like produce, 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 and it's got to, you've got to hit certain points every year to make sure that your department is going to get elevated nationally and and it just sucks the soul out of it. If if you're if you're someone who really cares about your writing, and then being told uh, we want X many publications by this time next year, okay, I mean I can do it. You know, I'm not going to get any weekends off, <laughs> but I can do it. But it it turns. I, I mean, I guess it turns it into a job. It turns it into a job. <laughs> it's more difficult to feel connected and and emotional emotionally invested in your work when you're just like i just need this published get it out i don't care <laughs> there's a couple of analogies i like to think of this it turns knowledge into a production line yeah and yeah. so you get standardized products at the end of a production line that are banal and uh, don't really say much or the whole enterprise is treated like a sport there's a scorecard and there's a scoreboard and we have to keep score and that's not what it's really about either Students used to say to me, we don't like reading academic articles. I said, well, which articles are you reading? And I said, well, just, you know, the ones on the blackboard, blah, blah, blah. <sighs> okay, well, let me, you know, there are good articles to read. There are ones which are going to get you thinking. Gonna, you're going to love reading them. So I'd, I had a list of my favourite ethnographies and my favourite, and I'd get them to read uh, one or two of these. Just that's it for this. And if you can read two these two articles, then I think hopefully it'll shift your thinking about writing. And, I, I, and then on a more personal note, each time I published a journal article, it just it felt like it was such an anti-climax. I'd go home, you know, split a bottle of wine, that kind of thing. But then I think, oh, that, geez, that's a, I'm not sure it was really worth it. <laughs> Something for the ref. But, but every time I published a shorter article, 
for wherever it could be, um, the diplomat, the guardian, whatever, 800 words, 1,000 words, and it would come out and it'd be like, I get comments from people all around the world. I think, this is great. Oh, yeah, feeling good. And, uh, you know, that night I'd have the bottle of wine to myself. So maybe I'm just not right for that for the industry, um, but I, I, I love writing, I love researching, but um, it's just that process is, uh, as, as we said, it kind of takes a bit of some of the joy away. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Uh, and of course, when you get a, a peer-reviewed article published, it could be up to two years since you finished writing oh. it, and then it comes out. Yeah, so that, it, that bottle of wine, it's definitely anticlimactic because it's something that was in the deep past. Yeah. yeah, it's corked by then. Um, I've just had one, the one I just published, I think I started writing it five years ago, maybe. But I, I stopped worrying so much about that kind of thing now these days because I don't need to you know, have a certain number in for the ref and they're not going to be. So it doesn't worry so much. I mean, having said all this, this is not an argument for getting rid of peer-reviewed work. Oh, no. Because peer review uh, plays a very valuable process in, in quality control. Imperfect as it is sometimes, but there is a place for peer-reviewed work in the greater knowledge ecosystem. It's just a matter of who has access to it, what is the quality of the material that's coming out uh, rather than the quantity, uh, and is there space yeah. for academics to do good work? No, I think that's right. I, I, the peer review process, is I make sure I peer review a bunch of articles every year, and I'm always grateful for the feedback I get from my peers reviewing my publications. I'm, I'm very grateful. It helps you to create a better product, if you want to put it like that. And that's fantastic. Well, the production line, this is probably a really good segue. In our prior communication to this chat, you said so much of what's written about North Korea is recycled boring bollocks. And, and I'd have to agree with that. You know, I've participated in the boring bollocks, so I, I say that with a sense of irony and self-understanding. <laughs> but uh, Yeah, do you want to speak to that? Because I think this is a really important point. Almost everyone who is writing about North Korea is doing it to build their own career in some way. And everyone's talking to each other in a very small group. And I've noticed, I've only been doing this for, what would it be, 12 years but it's the same conversations in that 12 years uh, about North Korea being you know, belligerent this, rogue state that. And the IR people are talking about what's North Korea going to do next and, uh, and the, when's the collapse going to happen. And I get it because we have to produce. We have to be part of the conversation in order to get the PhD scholarship in order to get the postdoc and then get the, the lectureship. And, and to be, you have to have something to say. I just find that with North Korea in particular, the conversation rarely changes. There are very few scholars, I believe, who are writing anything from a, an interesting angle. And, and I'm not saying this just to, to, just to you know, flatter you, but you're, you're doing your recent work, I believe it was with Jay Song, more on, on environmental geo geography angle. And I know that there are scholars like Sarah Son writing on uh, North Koreans and citizenship and how, how they engage with South Korean society. I mean, there's some really great stuff out there. I think I just got extremely jaded and bored with the political science IR uh, work 
on North Korean, like what's the North Korean government going to do? And what does the new nuclear launch mean? And um, it's so dull. It's so boring. Oh, God. Uh, anyway, <laughs> I shouldn't, shouldn't go too far with that. Uh, again, it probably says something more about me than it does the actual field. But um, I think we, we have an obligation as scholars to look for new angles to understand any society, any phenomenon, whether, whether it's the rise of reality TV in the Western world or, or whether it's North Korean society and um, what happens um, between men and women on an everyday basis in marketplaces, right? We And, and there are ways of doing this. If I have to read one more article that says it's a secretive state, Jesus. Um, the, the ways of carrying out these forms of research, whether it's um, you work off uh, UN documents, uh, which you know, are accessible, you, whether it's you interview and work with North Koreans in exile, whether it's you, you go to the archives in Seoul, there's a, North, a library with a great deal of North Korean work there, and um, you, you spend a lot of time reading. So there are people doing really interesting work out there. It's, my point is certainly not to discount that work at all. Um, I think, and this is me too, I just got really jaded with some of that more, air quotes, high-level research on North Korean politics. And I was part of that too for a very brief time. I wrote an article called um, something about North Korean nuclear stuff. Ah, oh, socializing in nuclear North Korea, human security in Northeast Asia. And <laughs> it came from a lecture I gave. And I just said, you know, said to everyone, this is quite early on, maybe 2017, 16, North Korea's nuclear weapons. Everyone's going to talk about a lot, but nothing's going to change because no one can do anything. So maybe we just need to accept that point and start thinking about some, well, what comes next? How do we actually talk with, engage with a nuclear North Korea in a productive way, productive in a way that produces a positive outcome for actual North Korean people and for you know, people in the region? So right, it doesn't lead to conflict. Then I got dragged into, well, quite willingly, because you know, I had a lot of time to write, uh, into writing in this IR paper. And by the end of it, I found it hard to publish. I gave a talk on it at a conference. I walked away thinking, oh, man, that was a horrible embarrassment. And I, I, it's something, it contributed to the ref, which is fantastic, <laughs> but I, I never want to see it again. Uh, yeah, it's just, I find it. There are so many more interesting points to write about when it comes to North Korea. I had my existential moment thinking about what I was doing with my research back in between about 2014 and 2016 oh. for similar reasons because the security situation, the dynamics shaping Korean Peninsula as a security environment, they haven't changed. They're exactly the same. And this slow march of North Korea to getting a deployable nuclear <laughs> weapon, we know what that entails. So this boring literature that you're referring to, uh, and, and I, I, I'm agreeing Sorry. with you. I, I wholeheartedly agree with your positions. A lot of it is in the service of power. Absolutely. And, and trying to justify the continued emphasis on denuclearization, particularly by the United States. Now, any North Korea watcher who understands the underlying dynamics knows that that's just a foolish proposition. So, you know, I can see why you asked the question or what happens next. I think for security analysts, that is really the only question worth asking. But you're right. Rather than 
doing work that's in service of power, do work that seeks to understand North Korea at all levels of society, because that's where the that's the dynamic space. That's where the dynamic change is happening on the ground, not in high politics. That's right. And, and, and just to add to that, I think if we're genuinely interested in peace in the Korean peninsula, understanding North Korean society is a way to ensure peace in the continuum. Because if we see North Korean people as different, as alien to us, if we see them as, uh, as non-human, as people who are brainwashed as others, then it's easier to go to war in North Korea and it's easy to write off casualties as um, just collateral damage. And so the work of people who, who discuss like what might be considered the mundane aspects of human society are doing, I think, a good a service to maintaining peace far, far greater than security experts who are working out ways to denuclearize. Yeah, the prosecution of war requires the dehumanization of the enemy. So if you're interested in peace, mm -hmm. then mm -hmm. humanizing societies is the research to do. I'm glad we went yeah. there. That was a, I think that's an important bit of self-reflection. Let's go now to your book, because this is an example of doing research about what's happening on the ground looking at your work on the North Korean diaspora communities. Uh, so where do you want to start? Tell us about the new book. The new book is called Outsiders, Memories of Migration to and from North Korea. The idea um, behind the book came from meeting North Koreans in exile in Japan who had either been part of an initial migration to North Korea from Japan in the 1960s or were the children or grandchildren of those people who went to North Korea during that time. It's an interesting, it, tur it turns the usual narrative on its head, which is uh, North Koreans escaping a terrible place for the freedom of South Korea or the US or Australia. Because in this case, 100,000 people, including 7,500 Japanese, moved from Japan to North Korea and um, they moved for a better life. They moved because uh, life in Japan was very difficult in the 1950s and 60s, if you were a Korean, due to uh, the prevalence of poverty and discrimination. And um, wrapped up in that was uh, lower chances of employment, difficulty finding renting homes outside of Korean ghettos. So they moved to North Korea, um, where they were told they would find um, employment and free education, chances to study in Moscow. They would have... Uh, you know, allocate be allocated um, settlement money, and life was supposed to be very good. Now, initially, for many of these people who settled in, say, Pyongyang or some of the other um, urban centers, places that were still recovering from the devastation of the American bombing during the Korean War, life wasn't as as advertised. Now, for a small elite, who those who had supported North Korea while in Japan, or those who were very wealthy they were allowed to uh, join the party, very small elites, we're talking maybe a thousand people. But for most people, they were resettled in unfinished homes in um, very in northern areas of the country um, near the Sino-Korean border, very cold, very rugged, very difficult places to live, especially if you've come from, um, say, Osaka or Tokyo, which um, in the 1960s, you know, you're starting to really feel feel the growth, the economic growth and its impact on the broad society. So my book is about their journey. 
It's about why they went to North Korea. It's about what life was like for them in North Korea. What was it like to arrive thinking, I'm a Korean, I support Kim Il-sung and the fatherland. I'm here to contribute to, you know, to the rebuilding, only to find that the locals regarded you as no different from Japanese, the former colonizers. So it's about identity in that sense, in that when you move somewhere else, suddenly you find how you view yourself and how other people view you, it, there's, a, there's a disconnect there. So they went to North Korea and people regarded them as you, you wear Japanese clothes, you speak Korean with a strange accent, and, and those smells coming out of your kitchen, they smell like Japanese food, not Korean food. So they, were, they, they found themselves, they were, they were, again, they were considered on the outside of society. They were um, not regarded as being proper North Koreans or, or comrades. And so they had a very difficult life. And of that initial 93,340 people to have made the journey to North Korea in the 1960s, primarily in 70s, around 300 people have returned to Japan in the last 20-odd years. So I worked with those people. Um, I worked with around 50 of those returnees. And then we, the latter part of the book, it looks at what, was, what it's like to return to a country that you, even when you were initially there, you were considered an outsider. And then you arrive back in Japan and maybe you're, you're, you have memories from 50 years ago of your hometown, but your hometown's been demolished in that time. Or you're the grandchild of someone who went to North Korea. And so you've inherited memories of Japan and then you get there and you have to somehow match the inherited memories with reality on the ground. And, and again, you might feel like, oh, this was my hometown because my grandmother came from here. And, but the reality is that none of the locals see you as coming, as being from this part. So again, it's a medium of memories and reality and how they often, there's this great friction between them that arises. So it charts that journey returning to Japan after 50 years, and um, then engagement with local NGOs. Uh, NGOs who, uh, they are staffed by elderly Japanese men who, during the 1960s, helped to, they facilitated the movement of Koreans to North Korea. And they did this with the best interests in mind, that uh, they want to go home, they want to be part of their fatherland. So I will help, you know, I will, I will write positive articles in the local newspaper I will t stand on the docks and help everyone get on board. I will, whatever it takes. And now they're helping, they realized in that time part that North Korea was not as advertised. Let's <laughs> say, you know, well, it, wasn't, it wasn't the place, the land of uh, milk and honey. And so they've, some of them have worked to actively you know, spirit North Koreans out of where they were hiding in Northeast China back to Japan. Others helped them resettle in Japan. For example, reintroducing them to uh, language schools, um, helping them find apartments, even giving them a place to stay in their own offices sometimes. And so I, I fleshed out that relationship as well. And um, there's somewhat problematic aspects of that too, because uh, sometimes there is an obligation to try and repay that gift, that gift of um, help that the North Korean attorney has received, and that to repay that by giving presentations about how hard life is in North Korea, writing things about um, how great it is to have freedom again, things like that. 
But in doing so, they then endanger themselves because they raise their profile to North Korea, but also in Japan, where there's a great deal of animosity towards Koreans and specifically towards North Koreans. So they endanger themselves. This idea of the gift, it creates obligations for the for these people who are trying to help the returnees that may be unwanted as well. That's right. Um, so the the initial relationship, it, it starts off with a relationship of guilt, guilt for contributing to sending these individuals, these Koreans to North Korea in the first place. And so it's that underlying guilt, it, it's a driver for some of these um, NGO members to help them return to Japan. And then once they help them return to Japan, it's this feeling of obligation for the Koreans, for the returnees to repay that gift, the gift of freedom that keeps them participating in NGO activities. It's, it keeps them feeling this burden. The problem is, unlike, for example, it, you know, if I come to your house and I give you a bottle of wine, I say, oh, you know, thanks for the bottle of wine, it's really nice. Maybe next time you'll come to my house and give me a bottle of wine. You know, that's that's it's, it's a basic exchange. And these basic exchanges, um, they underpin all human relationships. So then there's a, this is the Pierre Bourdieu's idea of a gifting society. And we do this all the time. There's supposed to be a specific, you can't give, if I give you a $20 bottle of wine, you shouldn't then give me a $50 bottle of wine next because it causes you know, friction in relationships. So it has to be equal value. The timing is important. So if I give you that bottle of wine, then you give me immediately, give me another bottle of wine. That's not good. It has to be like maybe a couple of weeks in between. And so you see this with the North Koreans and the Japanese um, men in, who help them so much that the gift of freedom can never be repaid. It's too much of a burden. So they try and participate in these groups, which endangers their lives and endangers their family back in North Korea. They try and do that to relieve themselves of the burden of the gift but they can, can't do that. So what sometimes happens is that they end up just disappearing entirely. So they just don't answer calls, they don't answer the door, they don't, they don't want to have to deal with this budam, this burden anymore. And so I try and explain this dynamic in, um, in my book, uh, in the latter part of my book, because it's not just a, a phenomenon relating to this Korea and Japan situation. You see it in South Korea, too, with NGOs and church groups, and you see it um, everywhere, actually, um, where you have this power difference, whether it's the, a UN agency or an NGO working in a developing country. When you give something to people who can never pay it back, there's still an obligation to repay, and so people will do whatever it is to try and give back. But sometimes it's too much and it, the gift ends up consuming that person. The Edge Dwellers Cafe. What's interesting about this work is it breaks down the, the good versus bad binary, like North Korea bad, Japan, South Korea good. If people get out of North Korea, necessarily their lives are better. And that's not necessarily the case. It's a it's a more complicated situation for the North Korean diaspora that wherever they are, there's going to be challenges. Yeah, I think that's right, Ben. And you see this, um, you see this in, in a lot of the writing about the experiences of the North Koreans. Life in North Korea is so terrible. So everyone wants to leave. 
And then everyone gets to South Korea and suddenly they, they're like, oh, fantastic, you know, K-pop and, and fried chicken. Yay. Uh, but it, it doesn't work like that because we've seen it in, in the phenomenon of some re-defectors, they're called, who, who go back to North Korea. I've experienced it in many interviews with North Koreans that they miss their home. The government is bloody awful. Uh, they're horrible, which is not even getting into it. But I mean, like, like many of us, we don't think about the government that much. We think about date night on a Friday. We think about what we're going to have for lunch. We think about, and there's at least at times when there is enough food to eat, when you do have shelter, when you, your kid's able to go to school, you're really focused on just everyday life. And they, many of the people would want to go back to North Korea, but they, they know that if they go back, they could face terrible punishment from the government. So they miss their friends, they miss their family. And often what I heard from North Koreans in exile is, when reunification happens, I'll go back. And what they really mean is, you know, when, I, when I'm not going to face punishment, you know, I'll go back. So yeah, what I what I have hoped to do in this book is to is to challenge that binary that you just brought up, that good and evil, that 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 very simplistic understanding of North Korean society. Even at the start, when North Korea, when Koreans in Japan they go to North Korea, why I think this is important is because the dominant narrative is that North Korea is and always has been a terrible horrible place but it's our obligation as scholars to drill down on that to challenge the binaries and and what i'm trying to do is showing that actually you know north korea for a period of time was a desirable place to be and even now some people would still prefer to be there than living a um, lower class life in a satellite city of seoul these are complex issues and I hope to have revealed some of these issues in, in the book. It's a historical anthropological book, meaning that I start back in the 1950s. I explain why there are Koreans in Japan because of the colonial experience. I explain what life was like for Koreans, Zainichi Koreans. Zainichi means residing in Japan. What everyday life was like to live in post-war Japan when they, were, when they lost their, their statehood their citizenship rights there, and they found themselves having to make a choice, stay in Japan as a stateless minority you know, facing those everyday discriminations or take a chance in North Korea, um, a country which was um, at that time in the early 60s, 50s, economically doing better than South Korea. Why didn't they go to South Korea? Because Sung Man Rhee, the president at the time, he suspected Koreans in Japan as being communist sympathizers. In some cases, he was right. And there was a fear uh, that, that going to South Korea, where almost you know, the entirety, 90, 95% of these people were originally from, the southern part of Korea, that going to that area, would you'd end up in a prison, in a South Korean prison being tortured. So North Korea opened its arms to Koreans in Japan. Partially, they did it because they knew it would gain them credit on the international stage. You know, as a human, humanitarian gesture, we welcome um, Koreans who are living in misery in Japan. Partially because they recognized that uh, these people in Japan would provide a labor, an injection, uh, 
into the workforce in North Korea, and that um, some of these people were also quite skilled. So they thought, okay, fantastic, we can have um, some doctors, some dentists, some like, machinists who can come in, to, we can send them to Shinwiju, we can sh- send them to uh, Chongjin, and um, they can hopefully you know, contribute in a positive way. But as I already mentioned, arrival in North Korea, it, from, the, from the get-go, is a disappointing experience. They arrived, and they could look over the side of the boat, and they saw these people waving flags waving DPRK flags, the welcoming party, state-organized welcoming party, and they looked dirty and they looked disheveled and they looked unhappy. And the kind of the murmur, the ripple that would go through the, the ship, oh dear, you know, what have we done here? And from then on, they were led off the boat and they led into a waiting area where they were processed and, and the people with the political connections or the, uh, or the money would be sent to Pyongyang. Uh, the people who had neither of those dispersed around the country. And life was hard from the beginning, very hard, in particular for the Japanese wives of the, those 7,500, many of whom were uh, either Japanese wives of, of Zainichi Korean men or the children of these marriages. And um, they didn't speak any Korean. A lot of the time they hadn't wanted to go, but it was the, the duty of the good wife to follow the husband. The Japanese wives I interviewed uh, were filled with regret for that decision because it ended up fracturing their relationships to family in Japan. They spent decades feeling uncomfortable, surveilled. Then when they got the opportunity to leave, to escape back to Japan, they, they took that. It's a, it's a sad story, but I try not to. I, I think it's more a story of resilience and a story that shows that migrants are incredibly adaptable and even under the most challenging of circumstances, people are able to make the most of it. Being able to adapt because they have to, because what other choice do you have? It's, it's things like, Ben, many of the people I, I spoke with, and this is a, a chapter in the book as well, they developed um, survival strategies for living in North Korea. And, and, for example, outside the house was when you would speak Korean was when you would you know, make sure that you reproduce the dominant ideology of the society. Inside the house, depending on the circumstances, inside the house you could speak Japanese. You know, Dad would get out the guitar during power cuts and, and, and sing Japanese songs and everyone would sing along. Grandma would be cooking Japanese food. But always the message was never talk about Japan, never speak Japanese outside the house. because that's when you get punished, cut, carted away to a, a labor camp. And this, this was no idle threat. In the 1970s, Zainichi Koreans, the repatriates to North Korea, um, many of them were targeted in the purges and um, disappeared. So it's these survival strategies that they then also are employing in Japan following their return. In particularly the women, another in another chapter, I write about how women's engagement in the markets, in the black markets that grew up in the 1990s, mid late 1990s, in North Korea's response to the famine. Many of the women I worked with in Japan had worked in these markets. They know what it's like to have to hustle to make a living to feed your family. They know what it's like, and they employ the very similar approach. When they arrive in Japan with nothing, they don't speak Japanese, 
they don't know anyone or maybe they have one distant cousin and they, the, the NGOs maybe help them out with a place to stay, maybe they're connecting with a job. They work really hard, these women, but they also, my interviewees were also doing things to invest in the future, like taking, getting a driver's license, studying Japanese to the point where you could almost pass. It's about um, surviving in the immediate, but then investing for your future. And in contrast, many of the men I met were not managing to settle in Japan in the same way. And I, I, I theorize that this is because in North Korea, during these difficult times, men, even if there's no work to do in the office, they had to go to the office. Even if the factory was in a state of disrepair, they had to go to the factory. So women were out there hustling. They were at the market. They were, they were selling their rice wine. They were making tofu at home. And um, men were still going out and, and given the, they were given the, the social recognition by the state as being the head of the household, no matter what. So still the man was the, the head there. But then when they get to Japan, they don't have, they don't speak the language. They don't have any connections. And so they, they go straight into a job because that's the man's duty to work, but they don't no longer have any social status as they did in North Korea. It's been, it's lost when they moved to Japan. And so they end up just grinding away in these blue collar jobs without investing anything for their future as the women do. And what happens in the, in the family is that then the roles shift because the women are able to eventually earn more money and they can move into maybe an office job rather than working in a factory because they speak Japanese now, they've got some local qualifications. The men, have because they view themselves as the head of the family needs the man needs to work, they're just doing the same thing. So there's a shift happening in the dynamics of these North Korean families in exile. And it's, there's a thread there you can trace back to the um, social turbulence of the famine years. No, that's really interesting. I, you know, I'm familiar with the, the inversion of the gender roles that happened in North Korea. But to see the replication of that pattern for returnees in Japan and what, it, what ongoing impact that has is a really interesting story as well. Can you think of a, a refugee community anywhere else in the world that is politicised in the same way as North Korean refugees and that has a whole knowledge industry based around or built on the back of these vulnerable people? It's fascinating, isn't it, to zoom out a little bit and to see how people profit from the experiences of North Koreans in exile. And I'm going to include myself here in this because I have built my career on working with, on interviewing, on writing about North Koreans in North Korea and in exile. And I knew from the very beginning, back in 2007, 2008, this would be a hot topic. People, North Korea is it always, any crap you can... Um, see in the news or anything, it's like a thousand reads, a thousand reads. And, and um, so people, whether it's journalists or academics or people endlessly, they're building their careers on the backs of vulnerable people. And in this case, it's North Koreans in exile. Um, how do we try and balance this? How do we try and write this, what I think is a wrong? For myself, I, I've been working in NGOs. I'm a volunteer in NGOs for 15 years. Um, I started working in the Mujige Danche, the rainbow organization, teaching North Koreans English. Um, I worked in a whole bunch of NGOs in South Korea, PS Corps, 
and several others which people will know, and in Australia as well. And then in Japan, I volunteered at a journalist outfit while I was there translating articles which were spirited out of North Korea by undercover journalists. Is it enough? Well, not really. It's not really. But I guess it, it helps me to think, okay, I'm doing something good while I'm profiting from other people's misery. <laughs> I mean, yeah, it's not enough. But this is try how I try and balance the scales a bit. The defector testimony industry. I mean, there's a lot of big names out there doing speaking tours and releasing books now, talking about their own experiences in and getting out of North Korea, taking a role in speaking for other North Korean refugees. This industry has also come in for a lot of critique. What's your take on the defector industrial complex, to give it a controversial <laughs> name? <laughs> Fantastic. I understand why... I think that if there's a market for it, then absolutely write your story down and sell it. Because for the majority of North Koreans, you're not going to be, you're, you're going to be funneled very quickly into the working class of South Korea. And um, life is hard in South Korea if you don't have social networks and you don't have skills that you can market in that society. A lot, of, a lot of these um, they're so-called celebrity defectors, they're doing what they need to do in order to survive. If you can get 10 million hits on a, on a TED Talk and then you can start a speaking tour of that, absolutely good on you. Make, make it happen. But what we're seeing, we're, in some cases, we're seeing the downstream. We're seeing what happens when the, call, the phone stops calling and when um, people are no longer interested in your book, when you've said it all, when you've talked you know, to every audience. And, and Yonmi Park is an interesting one in this case because um, Yonmi Park has long been the, the darling of the media. She's um, pretty and she is able to stand up in front of an audience and she speaks well and she comes across as very earnest. And she has, um, of course, she's written a book and she has... Uh, given many talks and now she recently started under the US Fox News umbrella giving talks across the US I don't I don't know if she started it yet but she certainly was slated to do so and some of the things she's saying is she's essentially reproducing right wing talking points about uh, the weakness of woke america and um, while north korea is getting nuclear weapons and becoming strong woke america's worried about pronouns and and things I mean I, I don't understand the connection there but and I think this is what happens when you essentially you stop being relevant people want a fresh story of horror to come out of North Korea people crave like I want more famines and more torture and because North Korea is a terrible place so let's have it all come on and we've already heard your story consume 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 and and she's being consumed by it and now she's having to reinvent herself um, and Fox News is giving her a platform for that. So I absolutely don't blame her. Some of her recent tweets announcements are, are quite cringeworthy, but I understand why she does it. And everyone's profiting from them. Everyone is, whether it's Fox News in this case, or it's a parasitic industry. And um, I think one of the most disturbing things is the people who proclaim to help North Koreans in exile are not always, <laughs> are not always helping them. Surprise, surprise. Everyone has their own motivations. Everyone finds benefits from the most vulnerable people. 
what I've seen is with some of the other North Koreans, the so-called celebrity North Koreans, is when the phone stops ringing, they have found themselves in working in office jobs. Or what you say, like more kind of, you know, every middle class, maybe they're giving lectures in university, that kind of thing. And I think that's probably more sustainable than going full right-wing horror show under Fox News. Um, it, it is worth thinking about how we all, at each stage of the line, each, each point in the line, um, take our pound of flesh from them. And again, I'm not standing on my soapbox without any self-reflection because I'm part of this, having worked with North Koreans for a long time. There's a difficult incentive structure for the refugees about how they can earn a living and what their career prospects are. There's the deep politicisation of the North Korea issue, and particularly in the United States. And then you've got this highly toxic media ecosystem now in the West, and you throw all these things together and, you know, what you're describing is the outcome. Well, we want them also, we want them to say the right thing for us. That We want them to give us their story as it shifts from a narrative of suffering to redemption, and we want to be the redeemers. It's that white man's burden again. It's it's the 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 sad, poor, neglected, tortured Korean North Koreans, and they can't do anything for themselves. So we have to step in to help them. And aren't we great for doing it? I'm glad what I'm doing now is working with migrants, some forced migrants, some labor migrants, and I feel like I'm more positively contributing to their lives in a way that doesn't doesn't have an extractive side to it, and I feel better for it. There, there is some great work, because I don't want to like throw the baby out with the bathwater here. Like Jenny Howe, for example. Jenny is a beautiful writer, and she writes about these issues, contingent belonging, how North Koreans are welcome in South Korea and other countries, as long as they toe the line, as long as they perform gratitude as long as they are able to show um, that they have gone through this process of struggle to salvation and continue to do it. And for some, it becomes exhausting. And for others, they make it into a whole career. So yeah, th- there is a great deal of really great work critiquing this industry. And I draw uh, a lot of strength from reading that work. The ethical questions about who the work is for, who benefits, it has to be front and centre in the the framing of this work. Yeah, absolutely. The ethics, I had it drilled into me very early on during my master's process at Seoul National University. My supervisor was very tough and um, she made it clear to me that I needed to be absolutely transparent all the time with everything I'm doing because these are vulnerable vulnerable people you're working with and you are a tall, white, English-speaking male. You are holding the power in these situations. And so I've carried that with me. I make it very clear in every interview I've ever done, this is what this project is about. This is how you, this could put you in danger in these ways. But these are the ways I'm mitigating those dangers. For example, like anonymizing information, you know, all the things that you have to do as a researcher, but a lot of people don't do. I make it very clear, I can't pay you for these interviews, but, you know, we can buy lunch, buy a Coke, whatever, but can't pay you for this. And at any stage, if you're not happy with what you're saying, you can pull the plug, no problems. The whole business of ethics are very important because people get genu- genuinely get hurt in situations like this where you're working with vulnerable people. Our interactions with the people that we write about are not consequence-free, are they? 
Exactly. There's always a ripple effect and you have to be aware of power dynamics and how just asking for an interview, some people may want to please you. Yes, I have an interview. That's why you need to continue to check in. Is this okay to talk about? If you don't want to, you know, you have to do that. You owe it to the people who are essentially, you know, they're giving their stories or loaning their stories for you to you. And we benefit from it, as I've said. Let's move away from North Korea now and talk a little bit more about your work in Southeast Asia. So I moved to uh, Myanmar in 2019, and um, I initially was working as a freelance journalist for the Myanmar Times, and I was writing about Letway fighters, martial artists there. I'd go to the Delta region, the Irrawaddy, and sit and drink Unknown white spirits with with men as we sat in in the start pattern and watched other men and women beat each other to a pulp. I I started meeting the fighters and I'd be really interested in what it is that drives someone to step inside the ring because it's a really scary experience. I have trained Muay Thai and Letway for about six years, and I've never had a fight. And I think it's because it, I'm just too scared of getting pounded. <laughs> so, but I do a lot of sparring and even that gets my heart going. And the night before, I know there's this big sparring session the next day. I'm like, Ooh, okay, all right, calm, calm, calm. So I'm fascinated by what drives people into the ring. Sometimes it, I found sometimes it's, it's you've got to feed your family, you've got to fight. I was good at fighting as a kid and I, I've been fighting since I was six years old. And you get these little little boys and little girls in the ring uh, it's bare knuckle in Myanmar, and they're fighting each other. And and other times, it's things like, oh, I, I want to be, I, I want fame. You know, I'm already getting my name out there. And so I wrote about fighting, and I still, I want to do that here. Now I'm in Cambodia. And I write about food as well, consumption of food, and why we eat what we eat, how we eat it. I've written about, I wrote a nice piece a few years ago about movement of curry from India Back in the day, back a long time ago, 150 years ago, the British took these basic elements of curry back to the UK and from there it sort of spread to the world. Japanese also had it. Anyway, I worried about the movement of curry from India to North Korea. And so it's a story of people actually, but told through curry. And that was one of my most, I really enjoyed writing that. Uh, Maybe I enjoy it also because there's less of a feeling of uh, I'm benefiting from the immiseration of others. Yeah, and, and also everyone likes curry. <laughs> who, who doesn't like curry? No? There's something for everyone there. So I digress. I yeah moved to Myanmar working as a journalist, and, and then I got a job. I did a project with the WWF, not the wrestlers, the Worldwide Fund for Nature, uh, working in the jungle near on the Thai-Myanmar border. The goal was to speak with locals in some of the villages there and to find out how they felt about the possible creation of a nature corridor, uh, which would protect tigers and elephants and other rare endangered species. So, um, because this would impact on their areas. And it was fascinating. I'd never been to this part of the world before. Um, But what what I came away with was um, how vulnerable the people are there in that uh, the common complaint was the climate is destroying our lifestyles. It floods heavily in the wet season. Instead of having rain over three months, four months, we get everything in a week and it destroys everything. And then in the summer, there's no rain at all. Everything dries up, crops die. 
our livelihoods are being destroyed by the climate. And of course, that you see this everywhere, the, the impacts of climate change, but to see it in such vulnerable people who are already living at subsistence, subsistence level was quite saddening. So that was a very important project for me, and it made me think I want to move shift into that field in the future, into um, climate-related issues and, and tie it together with migration if possible. And then um, I started working on labor migration for an international agency. Mainly, it's very important for countries like Myanmar and Cambodia and Laos, because these are feeder countries, essentially Thailand mainly, also to a lesser extent Vietnam and China, that hundreds, millions of people are moving, uh, men and women, to factories in Bangkok, to construction sites around the region. And so... Part of my job, and I'm still working in that position now, is to contribute to trying to make migration safer, to making sure that vulnerable people who are pushed to, not always, but sometimes pushed to move because of poverty, because of the impact of climate change on their traditional livelihoods, to make sure that they are um, not then further exploited down the line by human trafficking and modern day slavery. So. It's about creating safer migration pathways to and from destinations in Southeast Asia. Now I'm in Cambodia. I'm still working on Myanmar migration. Uh, I don't know what will happen in the future. May shift to migration from Cambodia. Facing, it faces similar issues, but uh, of course, Myanmar recently had a coup and life has become far more challenging there in the last year. Living in Myanmar up until early last year, and you got to see the beginning of the COVID pandemic in Myanmar. What did that look like on the ground? It was a bizarre experience, Ben, because I was in Tenintari, which is an area in the southeast, borders Thailand, in very re- in a very remote area where you know, villages are you know, dirt roads, and the what people kept saying to me is, "We'd like to offer you." like something but we don't have that because the trade stopped from china i said oh well, why is the trade stopped oh, because of covid what 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 is what is this what is this covid and then you know it's a disease <laughs> and and so nothing's happening because we rely on china for these things and, oh okay and that was my first event. and then in that same trip this field work was about a week long and i was getting um, messages from my partner saying i think we might have to leave myanmar what what are you talking about? So it's a, there's a, there's a COVID thing, and I was incredulous. Of course, don't be silly. No, 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 no. This is going to disappear like everything else. Like it's just. So I got back from that field trip, and and Yangon, nothing had really changed. It was full on. Everyone was going about. We went to a party and that kind of thing, and and then suddenly, more cases started cropping up in various places. Like China's right next door. And there was not, nothing noticeable in Myanmar, but there was a change in people's attitudes. Masks started coming out and every conversation was suddenly about COVID. <laughs> and very quickly, within a month of that, you know, within a month, maybe just three weeks, we found ourselves being evacuated from Yangon to Sydney, where I then started working remotely. There w- weren't any... I don't think there are even any cases for another several months after that. But then more recently, Myanmar has been hit very hard. And 
the problem with Myanmar, as with many other developing countries, is that it, it doesn't have people don't have a buffer. They don't they don't have access to reliable medicine. There's a lot of fake medicine being sold, and they don't have access to uh, hospitals. The medical infrastructure is very quickly overwhelmed, and um, getting things like oxygen is almost impossible. Then, in, on February first, the military coup occurred, where the democratically elected government was pushed aside by the military, and um, that caused further chaos, protests, and killing of protesters by the military. Um, all this during a pandemic, and that was. Well, it was seven months ago, and since that time, Myanmar has had—I I might have this wrong—but around seventeen and a half thousand deaths, COVID deaths, and we thought things were getting better, but it doesn't. In the last week, things have got worse again, and it's just an absolute disaster. And the military is not able, perhaps not willing, to do anything to help people. It's a case of in in Myanmar. And there are already so many diseases going around, especially during the rainy season. It's the rainy season now, malaria or chikungunya. Or, or there are so many ways to get sick. And so you, now you've added COVID into the mix to an already vulnerable population. And um, people who don't have this kind of resilience that uh, more healthy populations have are people that can't rely on a medical system if they do get sick. So it's a really, really problematic situation. That's an understatement. I, I lack the words to fully describe the um, enormity, this, this suffering right now. The Myanmar people, they're calling for help, but their calls are not being answered. It's a terrible situation, man. It's terrible. It's, it's the worst that I know of. I, I saw just the very beginnings, and I, I didn't take it seriously because... I am, that's the way I am. And now, um, yeah, they're really feeling the brunt of it. Are you able to talk about the coup? Yeah. Given the fragility of the democratic transition, was this yeah. coup always a risk from the beginning of the democratic period? And what are your observations on where this might go? The last 10 years offered so much hope to ordinary Myanmar people. And it's at working for that brief period as a journalist, I got to meet people who've benefited from an economy that was growing, from a society that allowed modern expressions uh, of, like, I'm, I'm a gamer. I, I, I use my phone and I participate in international. We have a team, a clan, and we participate in international competitions. Uh, wow, okay, yeah, you know more about this kind of stuff than me. I met so many young people who go to university, plans to study in, in Australia. I'm going to university, then I'm going to go do an internship. Um, I want to work on trade and blah, blah, blah. I want to be a photographer. I want to be a designer. And, and I think this, I believe this came about because since the democratic transition some 10, year, 10 years ago, and um, there's been so much investment in Myanmar, there's been improvement in, in health, in, in the economy, and opportunities grew. And now I feel that that has just been squashed. I feel so sad. When I think about the lives of so many of the people I met who, so, who were so optimistic and had so many avenues to choose from, so much to look forward to, and that's been squashed. You know, maybe it's just my mood. I'm just depressed about the whole thing, and, and I really hope that I'm wrong. But 
um, certainly some of the people I've spoken with just they don't see what their future is now. And I think that's it's a tragedy to see the, the, the real world impacts of what was essentially the military, the Myanmar military was feeling insecure. They recognized that in one more election cycle, they may no longer be able to hold power. But um, I, I feel quite despondent about it all. I don't know what, where this is gonna where this is gonna go. And so I'm, I'm watching it on a day by day basis, rather than prognosticating. I guess what I just wanted to say is that I, I hope there's a democrat. I hope there's a move back towards democratic process. But I, I don't know why the Myanmar military, if they have power, would do that, especially given that they don't really have any role models in the region. How many ASEAN states would you call <laughs> democratic? Um, it, it, the norm, the norm seems to be an authoritarian leader or authoritarian um, structure, government structure. I don't know why they would like try and try and be democratic. And they've got like Thailand next door. Thailand is always having military coups. Or yeah, or, what's interesting to me is that there seems to have been a shift of the political culture at the grassroots through the democratization period. Yeah, that seems to have changed the goalposts from when the, the generals were last in power. There's a much more energised youth movement in Absolutely. politics. Uh, yeah, people are much more engaged in their own representation than they were prior to the democratisation. Yeah. Do you think this will have much of an impact? Yeah, I guess what you're, what you're saying is can you, can you really turn off that tap when it's been open, like, especially the, the young people that I, I was speaking about, they're used to thinking about politics as a democratic process in that it's they participate, a participatory process, rather than a purely top-down um, experience. I, I wonder about that too. I, I wonder how they're going to, are they just going to ruthlessly hold on to power for in, until these people become as jaded as, as the older generations? From everything I've read, they were on their, they were close to they're old, the older, they're, they're part of the old guard who've been uh, gripping onto power with their bony hands for decades. And from all accounts, like, you know, the charisma of Aung San Suu Kyi and the engagement with the international community gave a sense of pride to these younger Myanmar people. And, and we look at what happened with the Rohingya, what the UN called an ethnic cleansing. It's um, been couldn't stop the younger people thinking Aung San Suu Kyi is the greatest and that Myanmar hasn't done anything wrong. But it was certainly, even, even though it tarnished Myanmar's reputation further abroad, it's my hope that people power will win the day in Myanmar and that the young people will be the drivers of that. Uh, but as I said, the military holds all the guns. The military is able to negotiate with China and others, other actors around it. And I don't know if it has any incentives to let go and to say, okay, we're going to hold elections and actually free elections, elections that you know, produce a, a result where the military doesn't win 90% of the votes. I, I don't know why it would do that because it could find itself losing power. The military is really unpopular. Myanmar has been in the grips of civil, very states of civil war for the last 60, 70 years. With the coup, some kind of power sharing is not an end game anymore. The military is in it no. till the death now. The, the hope was for a long time to have a federal system whereby the centre with the NLD, 
Aung San Suu party would share um, power with the ethnic minority groups around the area. Um, but even that, there was so much endless talking about that kind of system. But I think a lot of people, you know, it's actually it's never, never really going to happen, never really going to happen. And to think that the military, who hold all the cards at the moment, well, except they're deeply unpopular, um, to think that they would compromise, I think, I wonder if they've just gone too far now. So I've been really intrigued to watch your Instagram posts about your martial arts practice. Uh, it looks really cool from an outsider. But from a mental health angle, I'm interested in, you know, why you do it and, and what you get out of this training and how it's a benefit to you. Isn't it great I have an Instagram account? I, I really felt like I was catching up with the world when I started that. So, yeah, thanks for acknowledging that. You know, everyone should definitely follow my incredible posts. Yeah, so I, I think it was at, when I started teaching at Sheffield, it was so – I was working seven days a week and trying to publish, prepare all these original courses, and I felt quite um, overwhelmed by it. I'd done Thai boxing in the past in South Korea – just you know, for a year or something in my early 20s. And I thought, okay, I'm going to give this a shot. And I started doing it in Sheffield. They have, it's called Wicker Camp, one of the premier gyms in Europe. And their system of teaching is outstanding. And it was just such a relief. For that hour and a half, two hours of training every time, I didn't think about anything to do with work. I didn't think about like having to get a publication out or like, the, the nerves I feel when I'm just before I'm about to start teaching, nothing like that. All I think about was like, okay, get that hook right, get that one, two right. And, uh, and it was just such a relief. So I started doing it once a week, then twice a week, then three times a week. Right? And, and as a nice benefit, I also started feeling like, physically healthier. And then because I know I've got training the next day, I don't have a glass of wine the night before. I'm like, oh, wow, look at this virtuous circle going on here. And, and so it was just, I just, was a happier person and I am a happier person when I can train regularly you know on a simplistic level you're, you're venting you're punching something and the energy is going outward and you but it's also it's really about mindfulness it's a sense of meditation like a meditative state I get into it when I'm doing that I, I don't worry about things and then I sleep better that night because I've used up that energy and so it's really about it started off as a mental health guard like rail guardrail just to keep me focused and, and not let me you know fall off the edge and it's continued in that way but it's become also i noticed i, I met some really nice um, people doing it people who they don't really care about north korea or <laughs> anything like that you know you can just go and, and chat about like training and all this kind of thing and and um so i met that's how i got a got a really nice group of friends in myanmar um, locals as well couldn't find a way to meet locals you get trapped in in the expat bubble start training Letway, and suddenly you've got best buddies who you know, aren't afraid to punch you in the face every weekend and now i've started it here in cambodia it's called kun khmer here that's one of the words um, one of the types of martial art it, it again it's really hard in 35 degrees and the locals when they're training you they're not afraid to stick that elbow in your guts which <laughs> But, um, yeah, it keeps me afloat, basically, in the times when I'm worried about will I have a job next year or is my child going to become a serial killer? I'm like, don't worry about it. Just punch that pad. <laughs> so it brings me a lot of happiness. Uh, yeah, good for the soul, a good common language to engage with, with other people across cultural boundaries. That's awesome. 
Yeah, and and, if, and strangely, uh, with Facebook, I stopped writing on Facebook five years ago. I find social media to be quite a negative influence in my life, and so I stopped engaging it in very much a long time ago. But I built a bit of a, a community through this training, and I follow other fighters, and it's quite nice because I can like have some interactions with people and watch them when they're actually fighting. Like, oh, you beautiful technique. They're just, uh, and, and you can have some chats and stuff. I'm like, oh, this is why people use social media. And it's not just about baby pictures and uh, anti-vaxxers. And so <laughs> it's, it's, it's nice in that way. Marcus Bell, thanks so much for joining us in the Edge Dwellers Cafe. Thank you. It's been, it's been a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Cheers, Ben. Really appreciate it. Dwellers Cafe. Hats off to Marcus for providing such a rich conversation across a range of topics from his professional experience. What resonated with me across all of the discussion topics was his approach to critical self-reflection in his professional practice. And with that, weighing up what it means to be an academic both within and outside the academy. It's something that's been occupying my mind for some time and I enjoyed Marcus's perspective on these questions. Also, big thanks to Marcus for coming to speak with my Master of International Relations class in the same week that he recorded this podcast to talk about what's going on in Myanmar at the moment. I really appreciate his contribution to the teaching program. You can get in touch with Marcus via the links to his contacts in the show notes. A reminder that if you like what you hear at the Edge Dwellers Cafe and you want to support the podcast, please click on the like and subscribe buttons on whatever platform you're listening on and even perhaps give the podcast a review. You can also support the podcast financially with a one-off PayPal contribution or by subscribing as an Edge Dwellers Cafe member on Patreon. Your financial support helps to cover the cost of hosting, production, editing, and research for the podcast. Thanks for joining me for this episode. This is Ben Habib bidding you farewell from the Edge Dwellers Cafe. Stay safe, everyone, and much love.